Ellen and I uh, spent a couple of days in uh, Dallas at the end of uh, <clears throat> this last week uh, with uh, a, a board that, that I'm a part of that um, uh, comes alongside churches to help them plant churches in uh, Spanish-speaking countries and Portuguese-speaking countries from the Dallas-Fort Worth area all the way down to Tierra de Fuego, down at the uh, the southern cone of, of South America, and it was uh, it was uh, it was uh, those those meetings are always uh, incredibly inspiring and and uplifting, but this one in particular was very uplifting with uh, the targeting of some capital cities in Brazil as well as uh, ten other cities, more or less sixteen uh, in total. That uh, that Great Cities Missions is um, is a uh, is, is looking to see churches planted in, and it's always it's always an exciting thing to be around people who really care about uh, the the gospel going into places where people have not heard it, and to share it with people that will be blessed beyond their imagination to to even know it, and and that that is really a great great thing. And I'm really thankful that we have a church like that as well that is really concerned about people and their relationship with with God the Father, and how that happens through Christ the Son. And one of the deacons uh, that was installed this morning, Mark Blankenship, is um, one of those guys that uh, has, has been in a lot of places around the world. And uh, I'm thankful for his leadership and his insight and the wisdom and the way that he leads that, that group. Uh, another guy that, uh, uh, that, uh, that really... Uh, really has has blessed me over the the last year is is Eric Richter and his desire to see people brought to the Christ in uh, in Taiwan and in particular in in Taipei and uh, you've probably seen the slide in the rotation about uh, the two mission trips one in July one that's going to be later in the fall September I think that is going to be going into two very very large areas uh, 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 People density-wise, uh, population-wise, in order to spend uh, two to three weeks sharing the gospel with these people, and and that takes money. And uh, if you would like to uh, to donate to Eric and the other folk that are going to be going on uh, these short-term mission trips, uh, make sure that you write a check and give it to one of the elders and and mark it down as as uh, going to those Taipei mission trips, and you will be blessed. But uh, but even more importantly, other people are going to be blessed, blessed by grace, blessed by the gospel, blessed by eternal life, blessed by all of the things that we hold dear to us. And uh, if you need some more um, information about what they're going to be doing, you can see Eric or you can see Mark, and they would be glad to talk to you about the greatness of those trips. Uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9. Which is, as you know, if uh, your Bible classes have already gotten there, this is very dense material. Uh, uh, Paul is writing, you know, uh, Peter says, you know, you've got to give Paul a break every once in a while because he writes some very difficult things. I think he was probably thinking about Romans 9, 10, and 11, which, you know, for a long period of time in my life, I thought, you know, Romans is really 1 to 8 and then 12 to 16, 9, 10, 11, you know, it's like some of the Psalms, you know, you don't really need to read them to get to heaven. Until I begin to understand exactly what Romans was all about and what it is that Paul is saying in these three chapters, which I think form the heart. And so tonight we're going to be looking at a lot of material. We're, we're not going to be able to go very deep. We're not going, going, going to go deeply in some of these aspects of Romans chapter 9 just for time's sake. 
but, uh, but we do want to make sure that we, we get across at least the top of this information to see for ourselves, to get a feel and, and to see what it is that Paul is trying to do. So let's begin with a word of prayer and then we're going to jump right into this. By the way, everybody have an outline? Do you need an outline? Raise your hand. Do we have any left? We've got a couple of guys here in the back with some outlines. We have two left. They go to the highest bidder. Sold. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, 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 we, we, we are just amazed when we look over the thousands and thousands and thousands of years that Your power and Your will has been worked through human history in such a way that we find ourselves, people from all kinds of different backgrounds and from different places around the world, with different attributes and characteristics, and we look differently and we speak differently, and yet you have brought us together, all of us, in such such a very multi-ethnic, uh, uh, multi-talented, multi-educational uh, group of folk. You have brought us all together at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And for this, we are not only amazed, but we give you praise. You have done it in Your power and in Your wisdom, and we give You glory. It is through the servanthood of Your Son, Jesus, that all of this is accomplished to Your glory. It is Your Spirit that sanctifies us and and leads us in the direction of of the Christ as we, we seek each day to step in His footsteps. Thank You ever so much for wiping our consciences clean and 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 taking away our guilt in such a way father that that it is not held against us thank you for every benefit that we have in Christ may we never take that for granted may may the sin of treating lackadaisically the gospel never be held against us father for it is great to us And we pray that as we we think about how Paul comes at it at a different direction, that you'll give us eyes and ears to understand and discern and to marvel. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, 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 for all these things that we pray for in Christ's name. Amen. In Romans, as you know, Paul is going to great lengths at the beginning of that letter to convince human beings of the rather obvious need, at least in Paul's mind, the rather obvious need for the gospel. That's why he says in verse 16 of the first chapter, the gospel is the what? Say it. It's a what? It's a power. It is a power of God that brings brings into our lives salvation. It's a power that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, when human beings begin to think about all of the problems that, that, uh, that, that pop up all over the place every day, nearly every hour of every day, the human answers to the human dilemma always kind of boils down to some kind of information or some kind of philosophy, some kind of ideology, some kind of, of, of doctrinaire uh, ideology that, that, that does not, that's really just words. More than anything else, it's really just words. But what humans need is, is something more than just words. What they need is a message that possesses real power. 
A power to enact change in that human being. And that's what the Gospel is. The Gospel is that power that transforms humans into the children of God. The Gospel is the power that saves by ending people's enslavement to the power of sin. It is the Gospel that is a power that brings people into the life that is beyond life after death. It is the life after life after death. It is the resurrection. Now, we find ourselves in chapter 9. That's the first eight chapters. And to help us to understand what's happening here, imagine somebody has been listening to this letter and listening to all of the great things with, with, with great intent. He's been listening to all of the great things that Paul has said about the gospel through the end of chapter 8, with it culminating at the end of chapter 8 with these words. I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us. Nothing separates us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this imaginary person raises their hand and says, Paul, Help me understand for a minute, Paul, how there have been all of these centuries of Israel, 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 and now all of a sudden it's the church. God has spoke to Israel. God has interacted with with Israel. God has done great things on behalf of Israel. And now it's the church. God does not seem very faithful because it seems like there's this tremendous separation between Israel and God. The question is God's faithfulness. Can it be trusted? Is God's faithfulness to be trusted? And Paul, in his mind, hearing something along these lines, it gets a bit emotional and it gets very, very personal for him as he responds because he thinks about the greatness of the, of the, of the impact of the Gospel in somebody's life. How it changes the most evil, brutal, mean-spirited, ugly individual and turns him into a beauty. And then he begins to think about those that have rejected the Christ. Mainly his, his own people. It gets very personal and a bit emotional as he responds, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Those are the first words, the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 9. He does the same thing at the beginning of chapter 10 and chapter 11, but chapter 10 verse 1, he goes, My brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be what? Saved. Now, everything that he's about to write, there is an interpretive key to it. The key is this. Remember everything that Paul has written in Romans 1 through 8. Paul has established, already established, in those eight chapters, that justification in faith, primarily in Romans 4, is not a novelty. It's not some deviant twist in salvation history, 
It goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 who heard God say that he himself, God himself, would give Abraham, even though his body is dead and Sarah's body is dead as well, that he is going to give Abraham and Sarah a son. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he, what? Credited it to him as, say it, righteousness. Then in Romans 4, with Abraham as an example, Paul writes, to the one who does not work but trusts God, which is exactly what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 15, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as what? The same thing. Righteousness. Now there it is. In the Old Testament and New Testament, with Israel and the church, it's always been the trusting, believing faith in God. That is what he has, he has been seeking. That's what he has sought. So where was the disconnect, especially in light of, of the eight characteristics, John R. W. Stott refers to them as privileges that belonged to Israel. How did that disconnect happen when they had, number one, sonship? And they had an encounter with the divine glory. And they had the covenants and the law. They worshipped at the temple. And not just, not just a structure, but it was a place where God Himself, the kavod of, of God in Hebrew, the glory of God, and, and, and it's kind of a difficult word to, 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 to kind of get a handle on, but kavod is, is about the heaviness of the core of God. It's a word that sort of relates to the liver, the, the heaviest organ in the body. God's glory, His essence, the weight of His being, is right there in the temple and they worshipped it. And the promises and, and all of the patriarchs and, the, and even this, the human ancestry of the Messiah. Meaning that Jesus Himself, Jesus the Messiah, came up through the very center of the Hebrew people. The great puzzle is that with all of these characteristics, with all of these privileges, with, with all of these elements of their history, how did Israel not see in the Messiah, Jesus, the work of God from before the creation of the world, as Paul would write about it in another place, Ephesians chapter 1. The answer in part came from the development of an erroneous self-identity. And a self-identity that unfortunately led to reliance on the wrong things. So what are the two things that form Israel's self-identity in Romans chapter 9? Paul's just going to list two of them. He's going to say this. Their self-identity was based on the fact that we are the children of Abraham. Literally, his physical descendants. So we have in places like Genesis chapter 26 and verse 24, that night the Lord appeared to him, that is Isaac, and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, John the Baptist is, 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 is putting you know, the, 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 uh, the point of the spear to the people of Israel. And he says, do not think that you can say to yourself that we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And so this was a part of the identity during the time of Jesus, that we are the children of Abraham, based on you know, things that were happening in the past. And then number two, we are keepers of Torah or keepers of the law. 
In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 6, in, in, in talking about um, uh, the, the Ten Commandments and, and, and the formation of Israel as a nation, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, these Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so you see that through history, there were at least these two things. Paul's going to mention another one. But there are at least these two things that through, through Abraham's seed and by keeping the law, keeping Torah, we are in good with God. So how does Paul reconcile this issue that questions the faithfulness to God? Well, number one, he says God's Word did not fail. It had never been about DNA. It had never been about works. He says in verse 6, It is not as though God's Word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. For not all who have descended from Israel are Israel. Now that seems like an easy way out for Paul, isn't it? Big Israel is not true Israel. Big Israel is not God's Israel, yet Paul has already addressed the faith of Abraham that has made the difference. And he has already alluded to the idea of true Israel seven chapters earlier when he says in Romans chapter 2, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the what? Not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, Paul is going to underscore how God has always worked through history by illustrating their own national sense of, of, of being, and their own national sense of history. The first example is this. It was Isaac and not Ishmael. It was not Isaac and Ishmael, even though both shared Abraham's DNA. Both said, Abraham is my father. Both shared Abraham's DNA, but one and only one was the son of the promise in which Abraham trusted God's Word completely. When God said, when I come back, son, that it would come true because it was God who said it. And what Abraham has done right there is the complete opposite of what happened 14 chapters later, centuries earlier, in the Garden of Eden. There was not a trusting of that Word. There was not, it wasn't just obedience, but the, it wasn't trusting the, the Word of God enough to obey. It was not powerful enough to impact the heart in such a way that when Satan said, God, if you continue believing in God, He's going to withhold from you. If you keep doing what God says, He's going to put a, put a, a, a big, heavy rock on top of your development. And so they didn't trust and they ate of that fruit. Now Abraham is looking at his own body. If you read Romans chapter 4, the end of that chapter, he's looking at his own body. He looks at Sarah and says, it can't happen any other way except God does it. And I believe that His Word is powerful enough to trust. And so in Romans chapter 9, verse 8, it's not the children of physical descent who are God's children. 
but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Now, this in no way means that Ishmael was cut off. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20, God was with the boy Ishmael as he grew up. The point was, Isaac was the son of a promise. Isaac was the son of God's Word. Ishmael was not. Example number two, it was Jacob and not Esau. Now, this just goes another generation down the road. These are the twin sons of Isaac through Rebekah. In ancient Israel, the older son is the one that has all of the privileges because it's the older son that is going to keep the wealth together. It's the older son that's going to keep the family together. It's the son who is going to step into the shoes of the patriarch father who has passed away. And it's the son who has all of these responsibilities. And it's this son who receives a double portion of the inheritance. But God chooses the younger. who turns out, ironically, to be a bit of a scoundrel and a rascal. But God chooses the younger for His purposes. Why? To illustrate something important, verse 11, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election and choosing my stand, not by works. It was simply a matter of grace. And what Paul is doing to sum it up is to remind people in their history that the promise comes true in the form of the promised one Son that God sends. And choosing will not be based on works of merit, works of honor, works of nobility, but it will be on, uh, through grace. And then secondly, God is not unjust in doing this, but merciful. God is not unjust, but merciful. Now here's the segue in verse 16. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And this is the way that God revealed Himself to Moses as He passed in front of him. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, uh, another interpretive key here. Um, not only do we have to remember everything that Paul has written from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 8, but we always have to go back in the Old Testament to see what the Old Testament passage was talking about. Now, if you read Romans chapter 9 and just read that passage, it sounds like God is deciding that on some people I'm going to have mercy, some people I have compassion, some people not so much. In other doctrines of, of theology, it's known as the doctrine of reprobation. It means that God chooses some to be saved and God chooses some not to be saved. But in Romans chapter 9, uh, 9 verse 15, and this comes, goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this is, this is God revealing Himself to Moses. And Paul gives two examples of how the mercy and the compassion of God that was being seen in what happened with Moses there in Exodus chapter 33, and after that great mercy and that great compassion with all of the stuff that went strangely off, off, you know, off the grid in terms of its evil, down there among the people, he says, I'm going to give, I, I have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. And now there are two examples. The first example is Pharaoh. 
Everyone knows the story of Egypt and Pharaoh and the ten plagues and Exodus. Generally, this passage about Pharaoh is understood as God choosing a human being, Pharaoh in this case, to demonstrate God's power and judgment for a hard heart by personally hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, I go in the opposite direction in light of what Exodus actually tells us about the story. So when we get to verse 17, Paul writes, Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What Paul is wanting to illustrate must be seen in the original context. Now, when we go to Exodus chapter 9, where all of these plagues are taking place, God says, For by now, so we're down the road a ways, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth, but I have raised you up. Now, if you look very closely in your NIV Bibles, you'll see a footnote that the alternative translation is, but I have spared you for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So if the intent is to just wipe Pharaoh and Egypt all at once with, you know, off the face of the earth, why does God not do it with just one plague? Why ten if that's His purpose? Why does God not wipe out Egypt all at once with one plague? Because destruction is not God's ultimate purpose. What would have brought God glory? Well, everything is the answer. But not just manifesting His power over the most powerful man in the most powerful nation in terms of destruction and defeat and causing them to to not be that strong nation anymore. And everybody would say, God is the strong God. God's name would be proclaimed not just in Israel and, and not just in Egypt, but in all of the earth in the recognition that He is God and the one to be worshipped, the one true God. The unfortunate thing is that it did end in destruction. But if that was the intent, God could have done that with one plague. In fact, that one plague would have manifested that destructive power more than ten. But God is is using these plagues to, to manifest His power in such a way that Pharaoh will see it. The other thing to remember too is that Israel struggled with faith in God. Remember, they were not always you know, very eager to follow Moses and Aaron and, and to follow without fussing from time to time. And, and notice that it appears that the first two plagues, the water, and the, the water to blood and the frogs, fell on all the land, including Goshen, until the third plague, the gnats, where a distinction was made between the Egyptians and all of Israel. The third plague is also the one where the magicians of Egypt say, Pharaoh, 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 this is the finger of God. Pharaoh will not listen. And instead, his heart is hardened, thus revealing who he is in his heart of hearts. 
Now, one of the ways to, to get our mind around this is um, suppose, you, you know, out here in the parking lot, you know, in the middle of July, we go out in the hottest part of the day, and we, we take a stick of butter from the kitchen, and we grab some Play-Doh out of the, uh, the resource room, and we go out into that parking lot or out to that sidewalk where the sun is, is coming down, and we lay them both out there. After a while, we'll come back and see what's happened. And what will happen, even though both of these, the butter and the, the Play-Doh, are receiving the same sunlight, the same sun rays, the same temperature, same environment, one will, the butter will what? Melt, and the Play-Doh will harden. The clay that hardened was Pharaoh. And God was ultimately glorified in Pharaoh. But not by Pharaoh's humble recognition of God as God, but in the destruction that followed the hardening of his heart. Even when his magicians were saying, this is God. Now, someone might look at Pharaoh and say, you know, if it boils down to the nature of the heart, then verse 19, why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? Example two, the potter and the clay. And here, Paul says in verse 20, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and for for some uh, and some for common use. The, the potter clay image, which I think comes out of Jeremiah chapter 18, must not be simply read as a rebuke to silence for this impertinent or uh, inappropriate question or a test case to prove that, that God can do whatever He wants to do because He's the proverbial 500-pound gorilla. It, it's really about, the, the issue is really about the nature of the clay. Clay is, is to yield to the hand of the potter by nature. You go back into that resource room with your little five-year-old uh, kiddo, and they open up that can of Play-Doh, and they pull it out, and it's nice and soft, and they make all kinds of things with it, from hot dogs to giraffes to sailboats to, to blobs. The clay is to yield to the hand of the potter because that is the nature of clay. Clay that does not yield to whatever the potter wants to do with it, whether it's making a frisbee or making a beautiful sculpture, is, is, is tossed. Clay that is hard, clay that will not yield to the hand of the potter is tossed. The clay's nature is to yield and the clay's nature is to be submissive to the potter. And in the context of Jeremiah chapter 18, the, the potter and the clay image is a summons to repent in light of judgment. Jeremiah is saying, why in the world are you doing this? Don't you know that it's, it's, it's your nature to yield and to be submissive to the will of God and allow God to do and to lead and to make out of you whatever He wants because He is the Creator and the potter and you are the clay? In other words, Israel needs to do what man is always to do by nature when he comes into the presence of God. That is to yield. To recognize, I'm not God. To submit. His power is greater. His glory is brighter. His holiness is more profound. And to worship. But that's not Israel. 
in our Wednesday night classes, we've talked about how these presuppositions about what the Messiah would look like kept so many people from seeing the true Messiah. There wasn't a softness of, 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 of heart when it came to the working of God among His people to be able to see this is what God is doing. This is what God is calling us to be and to do and to look like and, and to be formed into. Instead, let's kill Him because it's dangerous for the country. It's dangerous for Torah practice. Well, the text ends... Uh, beginning uh, in verse 22 and going to the end, the, the text tonight ends with, with sort of recognizing God's purposes. Listen to verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and to make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, which He prepared in advance for glory? Now, if we stop right there, First reading, what do you think of when you think of objects of wrath? Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh. As we've seen, that's not necessarily so. But up to this point, in this verse, the objects of wrath are very, very vague. But then we keep reading, verse 24. Even what? Us whom He also called. Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Paul will refer to all of us who have faith in Jesus as objects of mercy that were once objects of wrath. All of us, notice Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. He uses some of the same language. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us, what? Alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by what? Grace that you have been saved. Paul ends the text with two quotes. One from Hosea chapter 2 and chapter 1, sort of in that order. And it's about some of the Gentiles coming to faith. And he's going back and saying, you know what, this, that the Gentiles coming to faith is not the kicking to the curb of, the, of, 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 of Hebrew people. It was seen even in a place like Hosea. He says, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called children of the living God. So he says here that some of the Gentiles were going to come to faith. But then he concludes before he gets into chapter 10 with a a couple of places in Isaiah where the emphasis is, and always in history, the point was being made that not all Hebrews are being saved. Why? Because Israel and being Hebrew is more than DNA. And it's more than keeping Torah. It's more than circumcision. So in verse 27 of Romans 9, quoting Isaiah 14 and Isaiah 37, he says, Though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant, circle that word, will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out His sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. So on the back, if you'll flip over your announcement sheet and, uh, and sermon outline, let's summarize very, very quickly so that we get our mind around this. To summarize, verses 1-5, through five, Paul agonizes over the lost spiritual state of Israel. But then number two, Paul understands that not all Israel is God's Israel. And beginning in verse 7 and going all the way to verse 13, Paul demonstrates and illustrates God's purpose through His election, that is, choosing Isaac, the child of faith, and Jacob, the child of mercy, and not by works. Number four, God's purpose of faith is not always successful in humans, as illustrated by Pharaoh. People will be lost because people's hearts will get hard. Regardless of how great and profound a demonstration of God's power they will experience. Beginning in verse 20, clay, though, by its nature should yield to the purposes of the potter. That's what human beings should do when they come into the presence of God is to yield and to worship and to submit to the purposes of their Creator. And then God's glory is shown in allowing the objects of wrath to become objects of mercy. And beginning in verse 25, this also includes the Gentiles. And that's where we'll close tonight. Again, uh, a lot of a lot of information and kind of skating across the top of this, but basically, I think what you see is summarized well in at the, at the end there with those seven or eight statements that we just went over. What we're going to do right now is to sing a song. What's the song, Pastor? We're going to sing the song "Shout to the Lord," which is a great song to sing in light of 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 how we have seen God working from from the beginning of time to this very day of of people who were objects of wrath, like ourselves, becoming objects of His mercy. At the same time, there are going to be some shepherds down here at the front. If there are some spiritual needs that we can attend to tonight from teaching you how to respond to the Gospel, the good news of, of God's grace, that of, of God's work, Jesus on the cross, where the, the forgiveness of sins can be encountered and, and the resurrection to eternal life can become a part of who you are beginning tonight or helping you to understand what it means to be that clay in the hand of the potter and to yield your life in such a way that God is able to shape you and to mold you and to put you to His purposes, whatever those purposes might be. Maybe great and public and maybe not so great and private, but to yield and to submit and to worship. That's what these shepherds are going to be down here at the front ready to receive you to do tonight as we stand and praise God together. Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days.